Robbie's mother disregarded Shaw's advice. She said later that she felt compelled to obey the messages. Reason would say that she should have resisted since the force that was causing Robbie's torment had seemingly produced the awful bleeding messages. But earthly logic had long since departed from this family. Robbie's body had given them signs and they would follow them. They would follow those signs. On Saturday, March 5th, Robbie, Phyllis, and Carl Mannheim went to Union Station in Washington, where they boarded an overnight train for St. Louis. Watching the scenery roll by, Phyllis Mannheim had an opportunity to look back over the past seven turbulent weeks and try to sort out what she had seen and experienced. Aunt Harriet had been alive when it all began on January 15th when the scratching started she died on January 26th, there seemed to have been a change. It was almost as if something were going, something were growing and getting closer to Robbie. Now it was inside him. Robbie's mother could not describe what she felt. The presence, the stalking. She had not written anything about what was happening. She had no way to compare. One day was the next. But there was no doubt that things were changing. The scratching that had been on a wall in January, now were appearing on her son's body. Had she been imagining all this? Phyllis began counting how many people she knew who had seen what she and Carl had seen, relatives, friends, Ministers, a priest, nurses, nuns, and the teachers and kids at school, and the neighbors, those friendly neighbors who had offered to help. Some had heard the rumors and they had hinted that they believed Robbie had been playing tricks Others had seen objects moving, apparently on their own. Phyllis completed 
her count with them. Fourteen. There were now fourteen people who had witnessed events for which there was no earthly explanation. What was going on in Robbie's mind? Where had he got the strength and the cunning to slip his small hand down to the bed spring and work loose a crude weapon? Was he feeling rage when he slashed Father Hughes? What was driving this frail boy, and where was he being driven? Deep in our folklore is an old phrase that we utter, not realizing what we say. What on earth possessed him to do that? Possession, the idea that some force could invade a soul and overpower it. We have buried the primitive fright under layers of logic and science. In our world, in Phyllis Mannheim's world, Possession is the stuff of nightmares. But in other cultures, possession is an everyday reality, a belief shared by everyone in the community. Phyllis and Carl Mannheim had no cultural belief in possession and with the violent ending of the attempt at Georgetown Hospital, no faith in exorcism. They were parents who while living in a world too sophisticated for possession, saw across the chasm a son writhing in a strange world where possession existed. How to reach him, how to save him, because their quest. It was a quest without guides, but not without lore. To bring back Robbie, they would have to venture into domain of superstition and the supernatural. They would be going where few had gone 
in modern times. Religion divided the Mannheim's kin in St. Louis. Some were Catholic and some were Lutheran. All the sympathies with the Mannheims. All the relatives loved Robbie and sympathized with the Mannheims. Everyone offered help when they arrived in St. Louis. Phyllis and Carl Mannheim faced a choice that reflected the conflict between Catholic and non-Catholic approaches to possession. In the wake of the devastating experience with Father Hughes, they decided to turn again to a Lutheran minister and, incredibly, to a new form of Ouija board. On Monday, March 7th, at the St. Louis home of Lutheran relatives, Robbie's aunt and uncle gathered two or three other relatives around a porcelain kitchen table. One of them wrote the alphabet on a sheet of paper and held a pencil over it. They all sat in absolute silence seeking what they called an alphabetical medium. The table moved and the person holding the pencil underlined a letter. Another person at the table wrote the letter on another sheet of paper. The table moved again and again the pencil holder underlined a letter and the other person wrote it down next to the first and so it went table motion then underline letter table motion then underlined letter until the people 
of the table got their message. It was from Aunt Harriet. She was the spirit causing the unexplained phenomena. It was not the devil. The relatives next went to a bedroom to watch Aunt Harriet prove that she was hovering around while they stood there. A heavy bed moved about three feet. No one was near it. Robbie had been off in a corner reading a comic book. Suddenly, he screamed and doubled up in pain. Phyllis, sensing what had happened, opened his shirt and saw the now familiar scratches oozing fresh blood coming so immediately after the moving table message the words she thought probably pertained to Aunt Harriet usually those who saw the message in blood later reported where on Robbie's body the writing appeared and what the words spelled out. But no information about this particular message was reported. Robbie went to bed and after a round of good night, Robbie, his relatives left him alone. Soon they heard noises in the bedroom and rushed in. The bed was shaking violently. Robbie lay quite still. Phyllis stepped close to the bed and bent to listen. She could hear the scratching up and down the mattress as if some beast were inside trying to get out. Some relatives approached the bed and stood near her. They too later said they heard the scratching. All night long, People went in and out of the bedroom to watch the bed shaking and listen to the scratching.
Robbie slept fitfully, but when he was awake, he was strangely calm. Next day, Tuesday, March 8th, the Mannheims moved to the home of other relatives. Robbie's Catholic Aunt Catherine, who was married to Carl Mannheim's brother George. Like Carl, George had been brought up Catholic, but was not a practicing Catholic. He had married in a Catholic church to satisfy his wife's family as a condition for this, quote, mixed marriage, end quote, as the Catholic Church referred to it. George Mannheim had agreed that he and Catherine would raise their children as Catholics. They had two sons and a daughter. Billy was younger than Robbie. Marty was about Robbie's age. Elizabeth attended St. Louis University, a Jesuit institution. Like all of the Mannheims, St. Louis relatives, George and Catherine had heard every detail of Robbie's ordeal. They knew also that Phyllis's side of the family had called on a local Lutheran minister to help. His arrival and departure had been much swifter than the Reverend Mr. Schultz's in a reprise of what had happened back in Maryland. The Lutheran minister in St. Louis suspected diabolical possession and urged that a Catholic priest see Robbie After that recommendation, the minister hastily departed. Carl and Phyllis, especially Phyllis, resisted the idea of calling in another priest. Phyllis still clung to the belief eerily verified by the moving table seance that Aunt Harriet, for some unknown reason, was haunting Robbie. Phyllis would rather have a ghostly aunt possessing her son than a demon in league with Satan and 
the slashing of Father Hughes had unnerved her. Robbie might scream and writhe. Beds might move and vases might fly. But there had been no violence until the Catholic exorcism had started. That was the association in Phyllis's mind. Exorcism and violence all day Tuesday Robbie seemed content enough when his cousin Marty came home from school the two boys played supper time passed without incident later among themselves, the four adults congratulated each other on pulling Robbie out of what had been plaguing him. Phyllis began thinking of the three and a half weeks message and decided that Robbie, who had missed so many days of school already, should be enrolled in Marty's school. called Robbie over and told him her decision. Robbie looked at her coldly, grimaced for an instant, and opened his shirt. The scratches said, No school. At another time, when she mentioned school, Robbie held up his wrists. Scratches continued. Scratches outlined a red N-O, no, on each wrist. Then he lifted his trousers on each leg was a large in period. She shuddered. This was not Robbie. There was some new power within him. She said later that she felt she was reading an order from someone. 
she was afraid there would be no more talk of school. On Tuesday night, Robbie went to bed with Marty. The adults filed in and out of the bedroom for a round of uneasy good nights. The boys seemed fine. They looked the way they had looked on other visits. Two cousins sleeping over, ready to horse around as soon as the parents left a few minutes later. Sounds started coming from the bedroom. To Phyllis and Carl, the sounds were maddeningly familiar. To George and Catherine, they were frighteningly new. All four rushed into the bedroom. Scratching sounds seemed to come from everywhere, but they apparently originated in the mattress. As everyone watched, the mattress flopped up and down furiously. Then it started to move forward, pressing toward the corner posters at the bottom of the bed. Both boys lay on their backs perfectly still. Now, it was the turn of Marty's parents to no fear. Their own son lay inside this vibrating, scratching menace that had seized his bedroom. Their home, their own home had been invaded. Something had to be done about it. Catherine felt a deep need for a priest. Elizabeth Mannheim, after being told what had happened in Marty's bedroom, suggested that she talk to one of her Jesuit teachers at St. Louis University. Maybe he would know what to do to Robbie's parents, especially Phyllis. A priest meant more violence, more madness, but they could not object. This was not their home. 
And what if Catherine were right? What if Marty now was in danger? They agreed to let Elizabeth speak to a Jesuit. <laughs>